0: Armageddon, what comes into your mind when you hear that word? A event? A movie or book? The end of the world? Or a journalist using a pandemic, climate change, or other danger to motivate you to action? From a biblical viewpoint, there are two predominant responses with respect to this prophetic Armageddon. Either one thinks of Armageddon as the final great battle between the forces of good and evil that will end the world and begin eternity, or one thinks of a series of battles ending the tribulation by the second coming of the Lord to the earth to begin the millennium. The first view is the typical Reformed Calvinist understanding, and the second is the Biblicist or Dispensational understanding. As we shall see in this video, which view you take significantly affects your understanding of God's plan for history, your role in latter-day events, and your view of biblical prophecy and Israel. Typically, both views share the idea of a great battle occurring in the valley of Megiddo, called Armageddon. Yet, the scriptures do not indicate Any battle at Armageddon. But you might respond, what about Revelation chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, where we read, For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. He gathered them together into a place called Armageddon. Well, yes, the word battle is in this only reference to Armageddon In the entire Bible. But being good students of the Bible, we need to examine this passage very carefully before we accept either the Reformed Calvinist view or the Biblicist dispensational interpretations. As we will see in this video, your interpretation will seriously affect your anticipation, your understanding of the events surrounding the second coming of Christ proper understanding begins with that word battle that's used here in verse 14. In Greek, polymon defines many types of conflict ranging from a minor quarrel to a full-blown war involving many individual battles. This Greek word could be translated by a spectrum of English words that range from simply a quarrel, a strife, a dispute, a fight, a battle, war, or campaign. Thus this word illustrates a critical aspect of translation work that must be considered when studying our English Bible. That aspect is the translator's choice of the best English word to represent the meaning of the original language, be it Greek or Hebrew in Old or New Testament. In this verse, he must choose the right word to bring out the correct aspect of polymon, or battle, that God intended. Unfortunately, no translation can always carry the exact meaning of a word from one language into another. Because of this, the translator must make choices that are often influenced by personal preference, by his doctrinal beliefs, by carelessness, grammatical usage, or by the context. For example, with Polymon, the translators chose battle five times, they chose fight once, and war or wars 10 times based on the context in which it is used. Interestingly, where the singular word battle is used in a verse in our English, the context in the original actually indicates many battles, or plural, that are united in a campaign, Campaign is a group of battles all designed to win a war. Hence the Greek use of the collective singular often is just battle when in reality the Greek would suggest battles or campaign. In Revelation 16 and verse 14 Reformed theologians interpret it as a single final conclusive battle at the end of the world. Biblicists interpret it as a single campaign made up of a series of battles that will occur as part of the second coming of the Lord. As the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to regain his kingdom and to begin the thousand year millennium. Since I believe that how you understand God's plan for history will seriously be affected by how you interpret passages throughout the Bible, I believe it is important for us to determine which view is correct. I believe the key is actually found in the purpose that is attached to the location Armageddon. We read that demons and kings of the world are gathered together at Armageddon. This reflects a world war situation involving many nations. The word gathered grammatically speaks of the purpose for which these armies have come together to this place Armageddon. They have come to battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Clearly what we have here is an alliance of humans with demons to fight God and the reference to the great day speaks of the sixth vile or bold judgment that we find in the book of Revelation. That judgment has followed the seals, the trumpets, and five bowls previous judgments. In Revelation 16, it is the sixth bowl of the wrath of God, which is preparation for the final act of judgment before the second coming. Beginning with this next to the last vile judgment, we must consider the many prophetic passages relating to the great day, that coming of Christ. In this video series, we will see that it consists of eight major events comprising that day. Four of them are four separate battles that combined are a campaign between the Antichrist's forces and God Almighty. The last four events of that day are the final steps of the second coming of Christ. For some of you, the idea that the second coming of Christ involves only eight steps or stages may be new to you. You see, for years, I was taught that the heavens would open, Christ would descend immediately to the Mount of Olives in a single action as he defeats the Antichrist's forces at Armageddon, apparently simultaneously. I now know that I was always given the condensed version, rather than the in-depth progression taught by Scripture. Please join me, Robert Congdon, Director of CMI-TV, as we begin our series of the eight stages of the second coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ, to begin his thousand-year reign as King of the Millennial Kingdom on Earth. historical events related to the tribulation must be understood before we can understand fully the eight steps of the campaign of Armageddon and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are major events that will affect Israel and its people. The first event is that which starts the 70th week of Daniel, which is also known as the seven-year tribulation that we find in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Specifically, in Daniel 9, verse 27, we read And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many, that's the leadership of Israel and its religious leaders of Israel, for one week, prophetically seven years. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. The start of this prophetic week of seven years begins with an agreement or covenant that is made between the Antichrist and the leaders of Israel. This covenant allows Israelis to reestablish covenant living in Israel, dramatically demonstrated by the sacrificial system that is presented at the temple site called the Holy Place. Now, the second event occurs at the halfway point of that tribulation or seven years, when in obedience to the Lord's command, the people of Israel are told, Flee to the mountains, as they're commanded to do in verses 15 and 16 of Matthew 24, where we read, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains." The necessity is triggered when the Antichrist rescinds permission for covenant sacrifices and commits an abomination of desolation in the rebuilt temple. At this point, God's word tells scripturally obedient Jews, that's Jews who have read Matthew, understand that this is a command to believers. Scripturally obedient Jews are to... Flee to the mountains that God has prepared for them, where he will protect them for the remaining three and a half years of the tribulation. For the Lord further adds, Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be a great tribulation, that's the last three and a half years, such as was not since the the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. These last three and a half years of great tribulation consists of God pouring out his wrath upon the world and its rejectors of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Considering the context of Revelation 16, specifically verse 12, where the sixth angel pours out the sixth vial, now that's literally a bowl, thereby permitting the kings of the east to come or to gather to Armageddon. Verse 16. So we look at verse 12, verse 16, and the passages in between. Now, as we turn to verse 17, we find that it is linked, this context, to the seventh vial that will then be poured out. That seventh vial or bowl declares, It is done. The it being the tribulation. Thus, Matthew 24, verse 29, states, immediately after the tribulation begins the Lord's descent to the earth. In considering the campaign of Armageddon and the second coming, it's very important to understand the four groups of Israelis alive during the time of these events. So let's briefly look at these four groups. The first group is the apostate Jewish leaders of Israel and their followers that were spoken of in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27, where they are called the many. These are the ones that accept the Antichrist agreement or covenant. Now, since they're the leadership, they're the ones that have to agree to it, sign with him, and work in agreement to fulfill it. So they've accepted the Antichrist agreement or covenant, and they are described also by Isaiah in chapter 29, verses 13 and 14, where we read, Wherefore, the Lord said, Forasmuch as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, says God, therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men. Now that's the many that are referred to in Daniel. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Further, Isaiah adds, in Isaiah chapter 65, 11 and 12, But ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forgot my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, the Antichrist and his allies are that troop, and that furnish the drink offering unto that number. Therefore, Will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called you, ye did not answer. That was following the destruction of Gog that occurred between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. So, because I called you, you didn't answer me after that battle where Gog was destroyed, which the battle preceded immediately the covenant which they will agree with the Antichrist. When I spoke, ye did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Notice, he then speaks of those who obey and flee, continuing in verse 13. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servants, now that's the obedient Jews who fled, shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. The contrast here is between the obedient Jews who will flee to the mountains and the disobedient rulership of Israel that makes the agreement with the Antichrist. See how you have to compare scripture to scripture here to get the full story? We turn to Isaiah 28, verses 14, 15, and 18, where he specifically speaks to the Jewish leaders now that agreed to the Antichrist's covenant and rule of Israel. Beginning in verse 14, Wherefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, ye scornful men, that ruled this people, which is in Jerusalem, that ruled this people, that's the leadership, They are in Jerusalem, for that's the capital, because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come upon us. No, they're going to be protected. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, that will be at the halfway point of the tribulation that Daniel refers to. And your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then shall you be trodden down by it. You see, the leadership will be trodden down by the actual enemies of Israel, Antichrist and his allies. That's the first group. The rulers, the leadership of Israel that are not godly, they're secular. The second group of Jews are God's 144,000 witnesses found in Revelation chapter 7. These are sealed and protected by God during the tribulation. They have been initially evangelized by the two witnesses of Revelation 11 right at the start of the tribulation. As they have come to know Christ from those two witnesses, they've spread out and have taught throughout the world and given the gospel. Now, I've taught elsewhere in other videos that I believe the two witnesses that will, will give the test, their testimonies to the, the 144,000, the two witnesses will be Elijah and Moses, and I base this in part upon Malachi 4. These will have seals upon their foreheads this 144,000, those seals will signify God's ownership and protection of them during the tribulation. So the first group was the disobedient secular rulers and leaderships of Israel. The second group were the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, that God will own protect, and they will proclaim the gospel throughout the tribulation. The third group is the believing remnant in Judea and are part of the house of Jacob, a term God uses to refer to the believing remnant in Judea. These are those who trust in God and obediently will flee to the mountains at the midpoint of the tribulation, all basing on God's command in Matthew twenty four sixteen, where he said, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Isaiah calls this group the remnant of Israel in Isaiah chapter 10 in verses 20 to 23, where we read, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, shall... No more again stay, or meaning literally to lean, trust in, support. Upon him that smote them, but shall stay or trust, lean upon, trust in, what? The Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption, and that means destruction, decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption or destruction or annihilation even determined in the midst of the land. Basically, Isaiah is declaring that this group of believing Jews are those protected until the end of the consumption. Isaiah's term consumption, that's God's destruction of Israel's enemies that persecuted Israel and her people beginning with the Babylonian captivity. He amplifies on their protection by God in his chapter 41, that's Isaiah 41, verses 17 to 20. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear, literally will respond to them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places, fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. This is an allusion to the provision that he provided back in the Exodus. You're going to see a constant parallel. Those fleeing to the mountains are paralleling how Israel fled from Egypt so long ago following the Passover as they fled to the wilderness. Isaiah continues, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shittah tree, and the myrtle, and the olive tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree, the pine, the box tree together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the Lord hath done this, that the hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. In this mighty passage, Isaiah uses the phrase, the wilderness. Now that's an interesting phrase he chose. This term usually refers to the desert of Arabia, which is the wilderness of Judah, south of Jerusalem, by the Dead Sea. As we shall see later in this series, this clearly is a reference to the land of Basra, south of Jerusalem, and includes an ancient city called Petra. Petra was established by the Nabataeans, a nomadic Bedouin tribe that roamed the northern Arabia deserts. Their civilization concentrated also in cities, and it thrived from the 4th to the 2nd century BC, during which time Petra, their capital, became a thriving economic center on the road from the east to Jerusalem, the major trade route from the east. Their decline as a nation began in the 1st century AD under Roman rule, because Rome annexed them as part of their empire. Then, as the result of a massive earthquake in 363 AD, the city of Petra became the isolated ruin we see today. Why they didn't rebuild, we don't know. Why they left what was left of the city, that's not known by historians either. But they left, and it became an empty city in 363 AD, sitting there, waiting perhaps one day for the obedient Jews that will flee and God will lead them, I believe, to Petra. Now Petra today is located in Jordan. It's out of Israel. It's not in Judea. It's out of Israel. It is now the most visited tourist attraction in the entire country of Jordan, with over 1.1 million tourists a year coming to Petra to see it. Located nearby is the tomb of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Clearly, there's a significance of this area. It is hard to avoid the obvious connection of the wilderness of Aaron and Arabia with that long past ancient exodus of Israel from Egypt. As we shall see, and it's exciting, this parallel between the ancient wilderness wanderings of Israel and the fleeing to the mountains of a yet future exodus will be important in those days. Now, I'd be remiss not to comment on a parallel passage found in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Now, chapter 12 is often mistranslated or misunderstood or taught incorrectly with respect to the woman of Revelation 12. As I show in my book, The European Union and the Supra Religion, setting the stage for the final act, the woman is a symbol. She is a symbol, not a specific woman. She is a symbol of national Israel. And contrary to many teachings, particularly of Roman Catholicism, but also some Reformed and some other groups, it is not the Virgin Mary. So in Revelation 12, We then read, And the woman, that's national Israel, fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Notice carefully, how long is she to stay in this wilderness of the previously uninhabited Petra? 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half Jewish years. For a Jewish year, is 360 days per year. That is exactly the length of the second half of the tribulation. So if we take the number of days from the time they're told to flee in that event to the end of the tribulation, we find it's 1,260 days. In this same passage in Revelation 12 is speaking of the same period of time. Now notice carefully, there in the wilderness, God says he has a place for them. Now this word place in the Greek topos means a district, a town, or this will sound a little familiar, a dwelling place. It often is used to speak of a smaller location, that's part of a great whole. Now, you're probably already ahead of me. This same word is used in John chapter 14, where the Lord's speaking to his disciples and through them to us, to the church. In John 14 verse two, the Lord is speaking of a place that he is preparing for us when we join him at the rapture. Now, keep carefully in mind, The word place is used to mean two different locations. One in John 14 is the place for the church to dwell with Jesus Christ after the rapture. The other place is a place for Jewish Israel, the obedient Jews, to be protected during the last half of the tribulation by the Lord. Now think about John 14, our dwelling place. It's just for us. It's a city that is now being located in heaven where he's preparing it for us to dwell in. Eventually, it will be located on the new earth after the creation of the new heavens and new earth. That's for the church. But now, for Israel, God also is preparing a place. I believe that Petra is a place that is prepared for her at this time of danger, prepared by her Lord so long ago and waiting for Israel to be brought there by the Lord, leaving Israel at the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, interestingly, just as Micah gave us a prophecy of the birthplace of the Messiah, so too Micah makes a reference to Basra. And we can almost use the term Basra and Petra interchangeably. Now, Basra is the whole area, Petra is the city he makes a reference to Basra and God's future protection of Israel. For in Micah chapter 2 and verse 12 we read, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather, here's that term again, the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold, They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. No other place on the earth has such a unique setting for their fold, the sheepfold, but Petra. This great fortress will be the physical aspect of God's protection from her enemies. Remember, the purpose of fleeing was to seek safety by flight because of a danger. That danger that they must flee from is owing to the fact that Satan, in Revelation 12, we are told, has been cast out of heaven when? At the midpoint of the tribulation. That's Revelation 12:9. Then in verse 12, we see that it has terrible consequences. For it will bring upon the inhabitants of the earth, they will experience Satan's terrible vengeance against mankind and in particular, God's people still upon the earth. So you see, at the midpoint of the tribulation, several things happen. God says, flee when you see the abomination of desolation. Revelation 12 tells us that that's also the point that Satan is cast out of heaven down to the earth permanently. And Satan is so angry, he realizes God did it. He comes down to the earth, and the only vengeance he can take, he can't do it against God, is those people who trust in God. So now he's going to pull out all the stops, if you will, to destroy the nation of Israel and every last Jewish person on the earth. From this point on, the last half of the tribulation, Satan's total focus is upon the Jews, the believing, obedient Jews, and Jews in general. Now there's a reason for his focus. Satan knows that God has promised that Christ's return to earth is dependent upon national Israel, that's the nation of Israel, crying out or calling to God for his Messiah to come to deliver them, to rescue them. We're going to see that will occur at a later stage of the campaign. Thus... If Satan can destroy every last Jewish person before that point in time, if there are no Jewish people, there's no nation of Israel, God could not send Christ back to regain Christ's kingdom without breaking God the Father's word. So if Satan can destroy them, God's promised he will send it when Israel turns to Christ. With no Israel, no turning to Christ, God won't be able to send back Christ. We know that he will, of course, because there will be preserved people at Petra. Thus, Satan must destroy every last Jewish person in his attempt to stop the return of Jesus Christ and to prevent the end of Satan's kingdom's rule over the earth and his attempt to gain the people's worship. He is therefore trying to satisfy Satan as his goal given in Isaiah 14, in verses 12 through 14, where we read in Isaiah 14, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, this is Satan's testimony, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. In a later video in this series, I'll discuss the Lord's unique provision to protect Israel, the fleeing remnant, in much greater detail. We're going to see that it included the Shekinah glory, and God's provision of water and food quite possibly manna as you will see much will happen at petra during the lord's return in summary i would note that much of the effort by satan and his gang of fallen angels or demons united with the unregenerate humanity the those who don't believe in god and his messiah that Satan is to trying to prevent the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. When certain people teach and simplify the return as merely a king ascending his throne in a single stage, we find they greatly diminish God's greatness. The significance of the return and so many things that God teaches us through those events, and I believe that tarnishes by ignoring those things, glory of God. The third group are those that fled to Petra. They're obedient to the scriptures and the command of the Lord Jesus Christ that he issued in Matthew chapter 24. Now, the fourth group. This is a great multitude of believers. I believe it could include some Jewish believers that are referred to in Revelation 7 in verse 9, now this group isn't strictly Jewish. We have to understand there will be Gentiles saved during the tribulation. So in Revelation 7, God's speaking of it. In verse 9, he says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man can number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. They all stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. It's possible that among this group will be Jews who become believers after Matthew twenty four fifteen. They will need food, clothing, and protection during the last half of the tribulation because they aren't in Petra until they can make their escape to Petra. In fact, they'll need help getting to Petra at this point. It is saved Gentiles, the sheep of Matthew 25 verses 31 and 46 that will enable Jews to survive until they can reach the safety of Petra. And I think they will seek Petra throughout the last half of the tribulation, true believing Jews. Now we do have a video available to watch where I discuss the sheep and the goat judgment and that goes into much greater detail of what I've just spoken here. So these Gentiles will be assisting Jewish people, will be protecting and providing for them until these Jewish people can get to Petra. Now that we understand these two key events prompting the Jews, the obedient Jews, to flee to the mountains, and recognizing these groups of Israelis, we need to consider only one other aspect before beginning our study of each of the eight stages in the campaign of Armageddon, culminating in the physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth. That final background aspect is to recognize that one of the greatest difficulties in the study of eschatology is placing these events in chronological sequence in order to see exactly what happens we need to recognize that excellent Bible teachers have arrived at a variety of timelines for the subject. While most would agree as to the specific events and actions, the the eight stages, if you will, the order of those stages is often debated. What I will offer in this video series will be my conclusion after much study, comparison of other Bibles' teaching's and their writings, and their chronologies, and prayer. You don't have to agree with my ordering of these events. Oh, you might switch some and move them a little bit. But I would ask you to note the scriptural references to the events that I give them. Look them up. Think it through. And at least lock into your mind the general order of these events that will consist from Matthew 24, where they are to flee with the abomination of desolation until Jesus Christ physically starts returning to the earth. Now, (laughs) salvation does not depend on your or my timeline. That's not the issue. Rather, we are trying to compare Scripture with Scripture and get a better understanding of the greatness of our God and doing that to His glory. Having said that, Let us begin our study on the events that will lead to the Lord establishing his kingdom upon the earth in our next video. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily and we'll see you either here or in the air.